Before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to share a note from Facebook with you. Michael on Facebook commented, really enjoying these podcasts. Thank you so much, Michael, for your kind words and for reaching out. I always believed in my story and I knew it would get published someday. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, Sarah Nicholas. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and the stories authors are sharing with you. If you are, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or share this episode on social media. And if you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. Today, we're going to be talking to Angeline Bully. Angeline Bully is a number one New York Times bestselling author who writes about her Ojibwe community in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Her debut novel, Firekeeper's Daughter, is a Reese's Book Club selection and received the inaugural Barnes & Noble Young Adult Book Award. It's been developed for a Netflix series by the Obama's Higher Ground Productions. So please welcome Angeline to the show. Hello. Hello. Hi. So we're going to kind of start by going back to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long did it take from there before you became serious about pursuing publication? I always loved writing. I loved reading and writing, but I think I got the message early on that pursuing a career as a writer wasn't something that was solid or dependable. And and so I I internalized that. So I never had the goal of being an author. It just seemed too far out of reach. The first spark of my idea, though, was when I was 18. And I've told the story before. It always gets a reaction. But one of my good friends from high school, uh, she went to a different high school and we worked together. And she told me about a new guy senior year and that he was just my type. I kind of liked beefy football players that (laughs) anyway well I was dateless and intrigued so I asked more about him and it turned out that he wasn't my type because he didn't play sports and he only hung out with the stoners Mm. so I didn't think anything more of it and then at the end of the school year she said that there had been a huge drug bust and um, it turned out that that new guy had been an undercover officer well my immediate thought was, what if we had met? And what if we had liked each other? And then this question really kind of has stayed in my mind ever since. And it was, wait, what if it wasn't that he liked me, but that he needed my help? And so I think that my story really started with that question of why would an undercover investigation need the help of this ordinary 18-year-old Ojibwe girl? Yeah, that's how it started. And then I just, you know, lived my life, went to college, uh, started working, got married, had kids. I always worked for Indian tribes. Every now and then that spark of that idea would be like, wait, what if he was a federal officer? What if it was a crime that happened on the reservation? What if it was this? What if it was that? Then she would actually be the ideal person to help with this investigation. And so, uh, long answer, my daughter was a preteen and I thought, you know what, I'm going to write this story that's been in my head since I was 18. 
And uh, hopefully I'll be finished by the time she's in high school and I can impart all of this wisdom to her. So it took 10 years though, and now she's a senior in college. So that's the long story of my journey. Nice. So that idea had been simmering in your head for how long? I believe it was 28 years until I started writing. I started writing when I was 44 and it took 10 years from starting my first draft to getting an agent and uh, the book deal. Mm. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the moment that you knew that you wanted to be a published author, you know, that you wanted to see your book on shelves, that kind of thing? I would talk about the idea of the book. And my daughter was just so sweet. She was like, this sounds really good, mom, like even better than Twilight. Like for her, that was the high bar was, yeah. wow, this, this story is like even more intriguing than that. I think some story parts fell into place and it was like, wait, I have something here. This story is, the pieces are coming together. And then there would be times when I would be writing and an idea would come while I was writing that I hadn't ever thought of before. And it would just feel so right. And so there were times where it did feel like the story was really coming through me and not, you know, from me. And I just respected that, you know, I'm a grant writer by training. And so when you have that burst of energy or that creative idea, you ride that wave for as long as it lasts because you never know when it's going to come again. Mm. So once you decided that you wanted to be a published author, how did you go about learning about the book publishing industry, like how to query everything like that, how to go about it? Podcasts were really my main (laughs) source of, of knowledge. I was on social media. I was on Twitter. And that's mostly where I got a lot of the tips. I I started following certain agents. I started following authors. Uh, I found out about a really great writers conference for Native uh, writers. And that was where I made a lot of connections um, and met some editors for the first time in person, Arthur Levine, no less. And so it was towards maybe the, I think my drafts, I wrote so many drafts of my story and (laughs) one of my friends calls it like a choose your own adventure. If you want the story where Donis is perfect and makes all the right decisions and is frankly very boring, then you want this version, this draft. And if you want the more um, steamy version that only my sister has read, then you want this, this other (laughs) draft. Listening to podcasts, going online, following bloggers, that was really the main place that I got my education, the publishing industry, because I I don't have an MFA. My master's is in public administration, and my career has been, you know, in Indian education at the tribal and federal levels. Yeah, I uh, found some really great podcasts and learned about query letters, learned about different agents. Like if I was interested in an agent, I would type in their name and podcast and see what popped up. And that was really interesting 
uh, because I would hear things and I would be like, oh, that would be a good connection. I'll have to make a note of that for when I write my query letter to them. I want to bring up that point that they brought up in that podcast. So it was just a great source of information. So then what happened? Can you break down for us kind of your journey from then until you signed your first book contract? I had been working on the book for 10 years and I felt like I had taken it as far as I could that I would need outside eyes really uh, beyond like a beta reader. And so I applied for the We Need Diverse Books uh, mentorship program. I had applied the year before and I didn't get it. I wasn't selected. And so I tried again and I could tell the difference. My writing had strengthened over that. I, I could tell I was submitting a more quality application the second time around, a better writing sample and everything. And I got picked and I was paired with young adult author Francisco X. Stork. His book, Marcello in the Real World, is one of my favorite books in the universe. I had always worried, you know, was my story too dark? Was it too disturbed? And I liked his, because he's written about immigration. He's, you know, he's written about, you know, some experiences that aren't the light and happy young adult. And so I was really glad that we were paired together and he read my manuscript and he provided feedback. And then he said, you know, you really have something here. And he recommended his agent, Faye Bender. I hadn't followed her on social media. I, I really wasn't aware of her in terms of social media, which was mostly where I was getting my information. But I, I have so much respect for Francisco. You know, I added her to my dream list. And then I participated in hashtag DVPit on Twitter, which is a, a manuscript pitching event. I tweeted the pitch and it was Indigenous Nancy Drew. When 18-year-old Donis witnesses a murder, she must use her science geekery and knowledge about her Ojibwe culture to protect her tribal community before she loses anyone else. That's a great pitch. <laughs> I memorized it. <laughs> and I, I got 80 likes on it. From Well, I got more than 80 likes, but of the agents and editors, there were 80. There were 60 agents and 20 editors. And so it took me a month to research all of the agents and create my dream list of, I was going with like my top 10, but then I wanted to add Francisco's agent. And then I had another person who had recommended their agent. And so I added her to my list. So I had my top 12, that was going to be my first round of queries. And they were a mix of like, the rock stars, and then a couple that maybe weren't in that tier, but they seemed hungry. They seemed like they really liked my pitch and reached out to me. And there was an excitement and energy about them that I was like, okay, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna add this person in, even though they don't have any six figure deals, because I also used publishers marketplace and the database to search every agent to see not only how many deals they had in young adult, but how many six-figure deals did they have, mm. and, which is a feature about Publishers Marketplace that I, I like. 
because I was optimistic. I'm like, this book is, good. you know, <laughs> I always believed in my book. So I wanted an agent that knew the ropes and this wasn't their first rodeo. But then there were a couple on DV Pit that really impressed me with how eager and committed they were to the story. So I sent out my query letters and two weeks later I had an agent. Wow. I did receive multiple offers. So of the 12, I received eight offers of representation. Wow. All right. So after you signed with an agent, what was your journey to getting the book contract like? I will say that getting multiple offers is a very strange situation to be in Mm -hmm. because it's kind of like complaining that your child got admitted into every Ivy League (laughs) college and you have this, what a decision that you have to make of choosing from among, you know, every Ivy League school. Embarrassment of riches. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's, that was the first time where I felt like I wanted to share about my you know, like with my writing friends, but I started to feel like separate. Mm. I started to feel like, wait, maybe I can't share this because who wants to be the person that is agonizing over which college to send, you know, their, Mm -hmm. their child to. And it was stressful because I had conversations with all of the ones that offered representation and they were so great. Mm -hmm. I knew that each one it would be an honor to be represented by each one of those agents. And so there was like, how am I going to make this decision? And there was something about Faye Bender, who is Francisco's agent. And there's something that is so approachable about her. And also that she she's kind of this literary rock star in that she picks manuscripts and authors that you know, they might have literary appeal or commercial appeal, but there's something about kind of like her seal of approval that just elevates them. So there was like that top quality about her and the approachability. The key thing was that it was so easy to talk to her. And we talked about things other than the book. And I am a person that has a hard time asking for help. And she was the agent that I felt like I could reach out to her and let her know when I'm getting in over my head. Mm. I didn't feel like I would be afraid to, that I would need to hold back until it was a crisis. I felt like I could approach her while it was still in the, you know, I need some help and uh, get me back, you know, recalibrate rather than procrastinating until it's in the crisis stage. Yeah. That's how I went with Faye. Yeah. And then presumably you went out on sub to publishers. She had me do, we talked about, there were a couple of things in the manuscript that she was honest with me about this one issue and how you've dealt with it. I think that there's an issue. She said, I will support whatever story you want to tell, but please know that in her experience or her opinion that This one thing was so, I don't know. It's like a hot button. It was a hot button. And she said, I don't want all of the reviews to focus on that Mm. and not focus on the rest of the story. That this hot button issue could eclipse the rest of the story. Mm. I took that to heart. 
I took it to heart. And so I worked on a um, revision over that summer. And then we went out on submission mid-September. And my book auction was two weeks later. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Uh, We uh, went out on submission on a Thursday and we had our first offer, I believe, on Sunday. Wow. So then you had another difficult decision to make, but this time you had help, right? (laughs) Yeah. And that was not as difficult as the agent one was. And I think it was because I had my agent and I could share that excitement and anxiety with her. And so what we did is we had submitted to over like 20 editors and we had 12 that were interested. And so I had phone calls with all 12 and Faye said, take notes because details are going to get lost. And so she said, make sure that you take notes. And then if you can maybe type them up right afterwards and send me a copy, because she wasn't going to be in on the phone calls. That was just between me and the editor. And I did that. And that was the best tip because my notes, I'm I'm a good note taker. And so (laughs) I had a good system for that. And, but yeah, Tiffany Liao, that phone call with her blew me away. And I knew this is the editor that I want. And so it was a matter of hoping that the bid from Macmillan would be competitive. It's not necessarily about the most money. It's the best deal. Mm -hmm. The money part is if they're going to invest in a huge advance, then you know they're going to invest in the marketing they have a lot of skin in the game. Yeah. And so that's what a big advance does for you. But it's also about the terms of how it's structured and that editor does that is that editor's style, the way that they work, the way that they communicate. Do you have the same shared vision? Those are the things that, you know, maybe an offer wasn't the biggest, but that connection with the editor and the terms of the offer actually make it more enticing. Mm -hmm. And and so every auction is different, but I just felt so incredibly fortunate that Macmillan from the get-go was extremely interested in acquiring the book and being able to pick Tiff Liao as my editor was a dream come true. Nice. The note about taking notes It would also be good for any querying writers who are facing multiple calls with literary agents. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Yes. And the agent, I believe it's Jim McCarthy, has this blog about like questions to ask on the call with your prospective agent. And, you know, there are some really good questions there. The question that I asked that seemed to generate the best conversation was, when you read my manuscript, what was your sit up and take notice moment when you knew that this story was something that you wanted? And every agent had a different answer. Wow. And it was just so cool to hear the thing that hooked the agent. I asked the same question when I was having the phone calls with all of the editors leading up to the auction was, what was your sit up and take notice moment when you read my manuscript? And that reveals so much about what they love about the story. And it opened the door for, 
I felt like a deeper level of conversation than the ordinary standard questions. Nice. I'll include that list that you mentioned in the show notes so listeners can check that out too. It is time for the first cue of the show. Uh, Can you read your successful query letter for us? Yes, I can. Dear Miss Bender, Indigenous Nancy Drew, when 18-year-old Donis witnesses the murder of a loved one, she must use her science geekery and knowledge about her Ojibwe culture to protect her tribal community before she loses another loved one. Donis's mixed heritage and unenrolled status made her an outsider, both in her hometown and on the nearby Indian reservation. Now, instead of spending the summer after high school anticipating her freshman year at the University of Michigan, valedictorian Donis prepares for a different future, staying home to care for her emotionally fragile mother after back-to-back family tragedies. The only bright spot is meeting Jamie, her high school hockey superstar brother's newest teammate who is eager to hear all Donis's stories about the team, tribe, and town. When she witnesses a murder, Donis learns that Jamie is a rookie tribal cop, part of an FBI undercover operation, here to infiltrate a drug ring allegedly masterminded by the hockey players. Her brother Levi is their primary suspect. Determined to prove her brother's innocence, Donis agrees to help Jamie. Pulled deeper into the investigation, Donis must decide what it means to be a strong Anishinaabe Kwe and Ojibwe woman when she is forced to choose between saving her brother, helping the FBI, and protecting the tribal community. Firekeeper's Daughter is an hashtag own voices contemporary YA female driven thriller complete at 88,000 words. I am an enrolled member of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians and work in Indian education at the federal level. This is my debut novel. Francisco, I feel like my letter's so long. (laughs) Francisco X. Stork, my mentor through the 2019 We Need Diverse Books YA Mentorship Program, recommended I send my manuscript to you. You stated in an interview that you love his ability to tackle big, weighty, Topics grounded in characters so real they seem to walk off the page and into a reader's life. I hope Donis resonates with you in this way. I received interest from over 60 agents and editors during DV Pit last month. Editors expressing interest in my manuscript include, and then names of several editors, in addition, specific editor, requested my full after a manuscript critique at Quayley 2019 and specific agent requested it after Loonsong Turtle Island Native American Writers Retreat in 2018. I am querying a select group of agents and would be so honored if you were to consider offering representation. Sincerely, Angeline Bully. Nice. Now that I read it, though, I realize that it's much lengthier than what anyone would recommend. So, (laughs) But I think you hooked at the very beginning, so you are given a little more leeway in terms of length. So I think it works. So how has your experience been since signing your book contract? Uh, Have you had any surprises along the way? 
The big surprise was that two weeks after my book auction, the same process happened with the film rights. Oh, wow. And that was something that surprised the heck out of me. Well, and that was my agent, Faye, saying we need to co-agent with someone. And she had the name of this phenomenal person in Hollywood. And so we did a co-agent situation. And so Brooke Ehrlich knows Hollywood. And so she was my film agent. And there was immediate interest in my manuscript for the film rights. And so I went through a similar process of talking with different production companies. The company I was most excited about was President Barack and Michelle Obama's production company, Higher Ground Productions. And they have a deal with Netflix. Of course, you know, the Obamas, there's there's <laughs> that, there's that like star appeal. But really, honestly, it was me talking about how important it was for there to be native creative talent, not just in front of the camera, but behind it and in the writer's room. And that I really felt strongly about native representation in any film project connected to my book. And they were 100% on board. They totally got it. The, the people at Higher Ground, they had networks of people that they knew. They were mentioning names. And that was music to my ears because on the flip side, there had been a production company. And when I had you know, said what my core value was about Native representation, the person was like, well, are there any Native <gasps> screenwriters? No. And I just thought, one, how unprofessional to come to a pitch, you know, like you want me. Yeah. So why haven't you done the bare minimum of homework? And then the other was, I was like, I cannot do Indians 101 with someone. Mm -hmm. Like if they're not going to put forth the barest level of effort and they want to acquire a, a native centered script, I just, I was like, nah, I just cannot spend my energy on that. Yeah. And so that was like a huge reason why the Obamas just, it was like, oh my God, this opportunity would be incredible. So since then, I did not immediately quit my job. Um, <laughs> my book deal was October of 2019. And I stayed at the U.S. Department of Education for a couple of months. I think I finally gave my notice in January of 2020. And I left. Uh, my last day was Valentine's Day uh, 2020, which was a month before COVID yeah. changed life as we know it. And I am so glad that I left when I did, because I think if I had stayed on any longer, I would have felt guilty about wanting to leave and worried about my staff and wanting to stay on through the crisis. Mm -hmm. But I had an incredible book deal and I had deadlines and commitments with that. And I just didn't have enough energy to do both. And I'm really glad that I left my position when I did. Mm. So this is kind of the fun portion. I call it author DNA. It's a quick round. It's just kind of classifications that we sometimes use for writers. Are you a pantser or a plotter? I always know the beginning, midpoint crisis, and the end, but everything else was pantsed. Mm. But for book two, 
I am a plotter. Okay. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? Overwriter, definitely. Do you tend to write better in the morning or at night? Morning, early morning, 5 a.m. When you're starting a new story, do you tend to come up with the character first or the plot first or concept or something else? The main character first and the plot. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. Team coffee. Yay. (laughs) Team coffee. Whenever you're writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? I listen to movie soundtracks because it's a constant thread of music. Mm -hmm. And my favorite is the Interstellar soundtrack. Nice. When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? I'm more of a get it down person. What tools or software do you use to draft? I use Microsoft Word. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Draft one is straight through, but draft two and revisions are completely hopping around. And last quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? I am the world's most extroverted introvert. I can pour on the charm and be the bubbly light of the party. But when I go home, I just, I can stay home for a week and not talk to anybody or stay in my pajamas the entire time. I have done this and (laughs) that is my comfort zone. The show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. We already did your query. Now we're going to talk about that second cue. What were some of the worries that you had on your journey and were they realized or did you overcome them or how did they shake out? I was worried about crossing the line wherever that line was in YA. And so I had to do a lot of research of recent books because where that line was drawn five years ago, four years ago, three years ago is different from where it's drawn now. Mm -hmm. And so I had to read a lot of young adult. That was one of my qualms was that there would be too much disturbed material for it to really be widely read. And your mentor was one of those people who pushed that line too. So that's perfect. (laughs) Exactly. And he was phenomenal. Just he's such a generous, kind person. So now we're going to talk about the third cue. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of interesting or different or unique? It's odd because book one is so different than book two in terms of my process. You know, book one, I I took 10 years and multiple, multiple drafts. And book two, I have basically 10 months to, (laughs) to do this book rather than 10 years. And so everything just feels at warp speed. That's another qualm is, can I write the quality of story that I want? Mm. The nuanced, layered, gripping story in a a short time. I'm hoping that I've learned how to become a better writer. And so that, you know, I feel like a lot of those 10 years was me learning how to tell a story and trying different techniques. Oh, this is another qualm. Worrying that book two will be just a rehash of book one. I really want my main character and the story to feel different Mm -hmm. from book one. I don't want it to be the same format, the same plot beats. I really do want to take readers on a different journey. Yeah, I feel like that's a common one. (laughs) Did you have any kind of low points in your journey to publication? 
where you weren't sure if you were going to continue with pursuing publication? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I always knew. I always believed in my story and I knew it would get published someday. Mm. Whether it was going to be by a big five, now big four, or a university press, or like I knew it was going to be published. And so I wanted to make sure that my writing craft was up to the quality of the story that I wanted to tell. And then once I did that, then I knew, okay, I'm going to go traditional publishing and I want, I want to be published by big five. That's amazing. I love that confidence. I wish you could bottle it and sell it. (laughs) You know, I was also 54 uh, at the time. And so I just kind of think the beauty about being my age, the upside of it is having, if I can say this, having fewer Fs to give (laughs) and not defining myself on any one accomplishment Mm -hmm. or my image based on any one mistake. Like I feel like I have a healthy self image mm-hmm. and confidence in who I am, what I'm trying to do. And if people like it, they like it. If they don't, if readers don't like it, that's, that's fine. I'm happy. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons you learned on your journey that you'd like to share with them? My dad always said that us Ojibwe people were the first environmentalists because we only took what we needed and we left the rest behind. And I have that approach to getting writing advice. If something someone tells, you know, says to you resonates with you, then hold on to that. And likewise, if it just doesn't seem like it fits for you and how you write and how you want to tell a story, then leave it behind for someone else. And I did have someone who said, first time authors try to bite off more than they can chew. They try to tell too big of a story. And maybe you should just focus on a smaller story for your first one. And I was like, no, I'm in my 50s. Like, this could be it. I'm going to make it the most epic story that I can make it because I'm going to shoot my shot because I might have just one shot to give. So (laughs) that's great advice. Yeah, I've definitely heard bestselling authors give publishing advice that I don't agree with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I call this the acknowledgments portion of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. So who are some of the people or organizations who helped you along the way and how? Obviously, we've talked about Francisco Stork. (laughs) Yes. And certainly, We Need Diverse Books, which is a nonprofit organization. DV Pitt, which was started by Agent Beth Phelan. Those organizations, uh, Quayley, which is a literary journal, and they do a conference every year, The Color of Children's Literature. And that conference is incredible. I would also say there's a freelance editor, Sion Ashleman, and I found them through Twitter. They used to be associated with the Revise and Resubmit project. I worked with them for a year on developmental edits because I would share my manuscript with friends and family and the quality of critique I would get back, I knew wasn't strong enough to really help me. And that's because your your loved ones, they're rooting for you. And so they're going to read longer than someone who's like, hey, this didn't grip me. Or they're not going to know how to say you 
take too long to get to your inciting incident and you are bringing up too many secondary characters in your first act, that should be in your second act. You know, those type, breaking it down in the language that writers speak. Contracting with them and working with them for a full year was probably the single most helpful thing that I did for my writing. Can you tell us what is coming up for you? What should we look out for in the future from you? Well, there's book two. So I'm on deadline for that. And I believe the expected publication date for that will be spring of 2023. Oh, oh, okay. Which seems so far off, unless you're the person that's got to write it (laughs) and go through edits. Oh, can I say another qualm? Sure. I lost my editor. So people now know it's been announced. Tiff Liao uh, has left Holt Books for Young Readers, where she was a senior editor for a new opportunity. And so I am currently editorless, but Macmillan has just been so wonderful to me and supportive. And, and we're happy for Tiff. This is an she really got an incredible opportunity and I'm very happy for her. I'm kind of feeling rudderless right now, but I know that Macmillan will make sure that I'm happy with who I work with next. Yeah. Several authors on the podcast have talked about losing their editor in between books or even while working on a book. So yeah. Thank you, Angeline, so much for coming on the show today and talking to me. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really enjoyed talking with you. I felt like I was quite chatty. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Angeline's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her book. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, tell your friends, or share this episode on social media. And if you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. If you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That is Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. If you're enjoying this show, please check out Pub Talk Live. Pub Talk Live is a publishing talk show broadcasting live to YouTube every second and fourth Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern, but is also syndicated as a podcast. Agent Chat Live is a spinoff of Pub Talk Live that features casual chats with literary agents with the intention of helping writers get to know the agents a little bit better. Check out both on YouTube or the podcast app of your preference.